This uh, morning's second Advent message is from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. And the title for the message this morning is God's goodness in the fall. The Word of God says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Our gracious God, merciful Father, we pray that at this moment, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would take hold of our minds and of our attention and of our affections. And we pray that you would teach us your word. We pray that uh, this morning and during this time of the year that as we uh, reflect upon the greatest event in world history, the incarnation of your Son, Jesus Christ, Father, we pray that you would magnify yourself, that you would magnify your Son in our mind's eye, and that you would receive greater glory, and that we would depart from this place this morning with a deeper appreciation and gratitude for what you have done for us, 
and a greater desire to live lives of worship to you every day. Lord, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So last week marked the beginning of the, uh, the Advent season, and uh, the theme for this year is God's goodness revealed. And last Sunday, the message was from Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31, where we see God's goodness in creating Adam and Eve. Dr. Joe Kelly delivered the message on that text last Sunday. Because ultimately, we are left to ask the question, why did God create Adam and Eve in the first place? Well, it is certainly not because God was lonely. God has always enjoyed sweet fellowship throughout all of eternity within the triune Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is certainly not because God needed anything outside of himself. God is self-existent. God is self-sufficient. Everything that God needs, he finds within the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God needs nothing beyond that. Then why did God create Adam and Eve for his glory? God created humans for his glory. God desired, not needed, not needed. God desired to be known and worshipped. He desired to be known and worshipped. And so he creates human beings because the more God is rightly known by the creature, the more he will be worshipped and glorified. This is because God is the greatest good that exists. There is no greater good beyond God. There is nothing and there is no one more good, more enjoyable, or more pleasurable than God. Thus, God created that he might share his goodness and his pleasure and his joy with something and someone outside of himself. And in so doing, he brings himself great glory and honor and worship. Thus, God creates Adam as the head of humanity. And had Adam perfectly obeyed God's command, he would have earned perfect righteousness and he would have earned eternal life for all those whom he represented. But Adam failed and brought sin into the world. Thus, thousands of years later, Christ is born into the world in a barn, laying in a manger as the second Adam, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. Christ comes as the second Adam 
to do to accomplish what the first Adam failed to do. Earn perfect righteousness and earn eternal life for all those whom he represents. Thus, Christ is the head of a new humanity. The true people of God, a people who are in a covenantal relationship with God, who are perfectly righteous, who are perfectly sinless because of Christ, because of what Christ has done for us. And this is what we celebrate during Advent. We celebrate the coming of the second Adam. Thus, the first Adam points forward to the second Adam. And so now we, of course, now we know how the story ends with Adam and Eve in the garden. It did not end well. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so beginning it with verse 1, Scripture says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so here we see Satan possessing the serpent, and he is uh, engaging in a conversation with Eve through the serpent. And one question that we have to ask ourselves is, why did Satan choose to interact with Eve in this way? Why did he choose to possess the serpent and to speak to her in this way? The second question is, um, why didn't Eve find it odd that a snake was talking to her? Most people would have thought that was odd. We don't know for sure, but it may be that Adam and Eve were aware of Satan, that they knew of Lucifer, that they were not ignorant to his existence. And it may be that's why she wasn't frightened or shocked and engaged in a friendly conversation because she knew who he was. But we don't know for sure. The story really doesn't tell us. What we do know is that this is certainly Satan who is speaking to her. We understand that from passages like Isaiah chapter 14, also Ezekiel chapter 28, that uh, Satan is a fallen angel uh, who was once considered uh, uh, an angel of glory, of the highest rank, and uh, desired at some point and for some reason to overthrow God. It's one of the best examples of the fact that sin at its root is irrational. Sin is always irrational. We see that not only with the fall of Satan, but we see that with the fall of Adam and Eve. When you stop and think about it, they really thought that they would become like God by simply biting a fruit. At its core, sin is irrational. And so, at the end of the day, however, Satan is a fallen angel. He was cast down to earth with many of the angels that follow him, and they become uh, his demons, they become his cronies. And so, what we see taking place in the Garden of Eve, in the Garden of Eden, is that if Satan cannot take out God, if he cannot overthrow God, then he will do the next best thing. He will take out God's prized possession, his prized creation. Adam and Eve. And so Satan says to Eve in verse 1, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? 
You know, it's interesting that God said, God actually said they could eat of any tree in the garden. You can eat from all of the trees in the garden except one. You shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet the serpent asked the question, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In other words, he's trying to portray God as being harsh, cruel, unloving, demanding, unreasonable. You know, this is the most common tactic that the devil uses even today. He takes the truth of God's word and then he twists it just enough to lead people astray. In the, er in the end, the serpent is trying to get Eve to question God's word. Or minimally, he is trying to get Eve to question her recollection of God's word. What did God actually say? It would also appear that the serpent is speaking to both Adam and Eve. As we see in the Hebrew, that every occurrence of the word you in verses 1 through 5 is in the plural in the Hebrew text. Thus, he is speaking to more than one. And so Adam's tremendous mistake and his contribution to this entire debacle was not protecting his bride from bad theology. This is the same mistake that many husbands continue to make today. Idly standing by while their wives listen to or read bad theology. Believing that, well, this is simply between her and God. That's a mistake. And we should learn from Adam's mistake. But what is even more interesting, I think, is what the serpent says more interesting than what the serpent says is how Eve responds to the serpent. Look at verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did God really say that? God never said you shall not touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because when you do, you will surely die. So here we see the first instance of legalism occurring in Scripture. Because legalism is adding something to God's word or creating additional boundaries or requirements that God has not commanded that God has not laid upon his people, and this is a sin. It is a sin. God forbids doing this in various places in Scripture. I'll give you just one reference. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32, Scripture says this, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. To add to God's word is just as evil as taking away from God's word. God says, everything that I command you shall do, you shall not add to it, and you shall not take from it. It is a sin 
to subtract or add to God's word. Why is that? Because when we engage in legalism, when we create additional laws or rules or boundaries which God has not required, we are essentially questioning the sufficiency of God's word. We are by our actions saying God's word alone is not enough to protect us and to keep us safe. And so we add to it. And this is what Eve was doing. And so the serpent replies in verses 4 and 5, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. But God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. Who doesn't want to be like God? Who doesn't want to be the master and commander of his own ship? The master and commander of his own destinies. Answer to no one. Do what we want. Be sovereign in our own little world. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here, Satan is attempting to get them to question the trustworthiness and the goodness of God. In other words, what Satan is saying to Adam and Eve, God is not being completely truthful with you. He's not being completely honest with you. God is withholding something good from you. That's why he doesn't want you to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because he knows that you'll be improved. You'll be like God. God doesn't want competition. He's trying to keep you down. He's trying to oppress you. He is trying to keep something good from you. You know, the devil still does this today. This is still his most common strategy. You don't have to follow God's word exactly as it's written. You will not surely die. It's not, it's not really a sin. God will not actually be angry or disappointed with you. It's really not that big of a deal to fudge on God's commands or on his words. Just a little. Don't be so serious about living the Christian life. Don't take the obedience of God's word so seriously. Loosen up. In the end... God is really just trying to keep something from you. So often we listen to the devil. And when we do, he absolutely loves it. It reminds me of the advice that Uncle Screwtape gave to his nephew Wormwood in C.S. Lewis's wonderful novel, The Screwtape Letters. If you've read the book, you remember at one point he tells Wormwood, you know, you don't have to get your patient to turn against God. You just have to get him to focus on anything but God. Get him to be interested in reading the newspaper or even just lying around and doing nothing. So long as he is not focusing his attention on God, you will be quite successful. And so the devil tells them that if they eat from the 
forbidden fruit, they will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is how the devil operates. He mixes truth with lies. In one way, he tells the truth, but in another way, he lies. Because they will become like God intellectually and experientially knowing good and evil. That part is true. They will become like God knowing good and evil. Because up until this point, they did not know evil. They did not know what it was. They had no experiential knowledge of it. God knows what evil looks like. God knows evil. He has experienced evil, not personally in the sense of committing evil, but God has witnessed the evil of Satan attempting to overthrow God. He has seen evil up close and personal. And Adam and Eve will soon become intellectually and experientially knowledgeable regarding good and evil. But on the other hand, they will not become like God because they will not be able to handle this knowledge of good and evil. You see, the difference between God knowing good and evil and Adam and Eve knowing good and evil is like the difference between a scalpel in the hands of a trained surgeon and a scalpel in the hands of a toddler. A scalpel in the hands of a trained surgeon can be used for great good, for great healing, for great improvement. But a scalpel in the hands of a toddler is dangerous because they will likely hurt themselves and they will hurt those around them. The knowledge of good and evil in the hands of people has brought about great harm and misery, and destruction, and suffering in this world. But alas, they could not resist. They could not resist, and so we see in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he the fruit was physically appealing it was good for food that looks yummy it was visually appealing it was a delight to the eyes boy doesn't that look good and it appealed to their sense of pride it was desirable to make one wise in the end, the sin of Adam and Eve was pride and covetedness. It was pride and covetedness. They wanted to be like God. They wanted more than what God had given them. They believed they deserved more than what God had given them. And my friends, at its core, this is what sin is. Whatever the sin you commit... Whatever the sin that can be committed by human beings, at its core, sin is simply that we believe we deserve more than what God has given us. 
And so we take matters into our own hands and we choose not to believe God. We choose not to trust God. We choose not to trust His Word. Ultimately, sin is the result of questioning the trustworthiness and the goodness of God. Sadly, we then see the sad effects of sin in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What an interesting phrase. They knew that they were naked. What does that mean that they knew that they were naked? Does it mean that Adam and Eve, before they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, truly had no idea that they weren't wearing clothes? I mean, they thought they were wearing clothes. And then all of a sudden their eyes were open. Oh, my word. Had no idea we weren't wearing any clothing. Did it mean, does it mean that from the neck down was blurred and all they saw was their face? Had no idea that below that was, oh my goodness, we're not wearing any clothes. I think it means that they became self-conscious and self-centered. Prior to the fall, they both truly and solely lived for God and for His pleasure, and they both truly and solely lived for each other and for each other's joy and pleasure. There was not a smidgen of self-centeredness in them. They each thought to themselves, my body, my life, the whole of who I am exists for God's glory and for His joy and for His pleasure and my body and the whole of who I am exists for you and for your joy and for your pleasure. And sin reverses all of that. Sin warps our minds. It warps our way of thinking. It warps our perception of the world we live in and of ourselves so that now suddenly it's about me. It's about my body. It's about my stuff. It's about my rights. And I don't want you looking or touching at my stuff, my body, my things. It's about me and not you. Suddenly, Adam and Eve became very self-conscious and self-centered. They knew they were naked. And then we're told in verse 8 and following, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? There are several things that are puzzling about these verses. First, how did they hear the sound of God walking in the garden? We know from Scripture that God is spirit. So how did they hear him walking? This is very likely anthropomorphic language 
in the Bible. Anthropomorphic language is when the Bible uses human imagery in order to communicate something about God. One of the classic examples is in Isaiah 66, verse 1. There we read, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Heaven is my throne. Whatever heaven is and wherever it is, is God's bum really sitting on heaven? Does God have legs and feet and is he really placing his feet upon planet earth and that's his footstool? No, the idea is that it, using human imagery, it communicates the greatness of God, the massiveness of God, the transcendence of God. And the puniness of human beings. Somehow they sensed God was approaching and they hid themselves, listen to this, because they were afraid. That is sad. That's probably, in my opinion, the most tragic statement and grievous statement in this entire section. Another effect of sin is that Adam and Eve were now afraid of God. They were afraid of their creator. They now ran from the presence of God. They now feared his holiness and they trembled. A second puzzling element of the story is why does God ask, where are you? Why does he ask, who told you that you were naked and have you eaten from the forbidden fruit? God is all-knowing, so why does God ask these questions? He knows what they did. He knows where Adam and Eve are. God knows all things. Simply this, God wants to give them an opportunity to confess and repent. He wants to give them an opportunity to come clean. If you're a parent, you know what I mean. Or even if you're a child, if, you know, we were all children at some point and our parents likely did this to us when we were growing up as well. You know, parents with an only child, if they, uh, if they wake up in the morning and find a package of cookies that has been torn open and half the package has been eaten, uh, they know who did it. They know it wasn't either one of them, so they know who did it. But quite often, parents will take the child and say, do you know what happened to these bag, this bag of cookies? Why do they ask that question? Because they want to give the child an opportunity to come clean, to admit guilt, and to repent of their transgressions. <laughs> Yet, sadly, like Adam and Eve, oftentimes children uh, make matters worse by continuing to lie about it. Nope, have no idea. Maybe someone broke in in the middle of the night and ate our cookies. I don't know what happened to those cookies. Wasn't me. Adam and Eve are no different. You think they would admit their guilt? No. They don't admit their guilt. Listen to how they respond in verse 12. And the man said, The woman whom you gave, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, he gives her an opportunity. 
What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So here we see the horrible effects of sin, selfishness, self-serving, and self-protecting. They are each pointing the finger at someone else and throwing someone else under the bus. Right? Adam's implication is that, God, this is your fault, right? You gave me this woman, the woman that you gave me, this is your fault. And Eve says, it was the serpent, the implication that you created. He deceived, this is somehow, this is all God's fault. And they don't accept any responsibility for themselves. Sadly, we still do this today, don't we? We make bad decisions in life. We sin. We go against God's word. We do things our own way. And then we make life miserable for ourselves. And somehow, this is God's fault. Why is God doing this to me? It has nothing to do with the fact that I'm not following Scripture. Somehow, this is God's fault that I'm in this predicament. And so God turns his attention to the serpent. In verse 14 and says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. What is happening here? Well, there's essentially two schools of thought in understanding what is happening. The first school of thought says, uh, or uh, it takes the approach that snakes used to have legs. Snakes used to have legs, and God cursed them and basically took away their legs, and thus they would crawl from then forward all the days of their life, and they would essentially eat dust because their face is in the dust. Not that snakes actually eat dust, but they would you know, inhale it, they would swallow it, because they would crawl on their belly all the days of their life. That is quite possible. The trouble I have with that view is that why would God curse this poor animal that had nothing to do with the devil possessing the animal and speaking through? The serpent, he's an innocent victim in all of this, right? The, the devil possesses the serpent and speaks through the serpent. So why, why curse and punish the poor serpent? A second school of thought, and I think a more likely one, is that when God curses the serpent and says, uh, above all livestock you shall be cursed, he is essentially saying that the serpent will be the most despised above all animals, above all livestock. And this certainly has come to be true, right? By and large, most people think, at least that I've met, most people think all snakes need to die, Right? Poisonous or not, doesn't matter, all snakes should die, right? I can't tell you how many people I've met that think that way. I don't care what it is, if it's a snake, kill it, right? Especially if it is in my house, it needs to die. The poor snake above all creatures is despised. Thus, when God says, on your belly you shall go, he is likely making a change in the significance of snakes and not in the existence of of snakes. In other words, a good example is the rainbow as God uses it to be the sign of the Noahic covenant. God doesn't create the rainbow in order to make that a sign. The, the rainbow already existed, but he gives it a new meaning. 
He gives it a new meaning. The meaning prior to that, when you saw a rainbow, is that it's done raining, right? That's usually when we see a rainbow. When the rain stops, we see it, and it, the meaning is it's done raining, there's a rainbow. But now he gives it a new meaning, and that is it is the sign of the covenant that God has made with all of creation. So he doesn't change the existence of the rainbow. Rather, he changes the significance or he changes the meaning of the rainbow. And I think that that is likely what is going on here. God doesn't cause snakes to crawl on their belly. They already did. He simply gives meaning to snakes crawling on their belly so that from that day forward, every time we look at a snake crawling, we are reminded of what happened in the garden and that horrible event and snakes are Despised, But it's a minor point of debate. You can take that with a grain of salt. It doesn't really matter to me which position you would prefer to hold to. But now we come to one of the most important verses in the entire Bible, verse 15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. At first reading, it seems that God is going to put enmity between snakes and humans. That's what it sounds like when you first read it. But then it becomes clear what is meant when we notice that the text suddenly shifts to singular pronouns in the second half of the verse. God says he, it's in the singular, he shall bruise your, singular, your head, and you, singular, shall bruise his head. He's talking about two people, two individuals. So then what is meant in the first half of verse 15? God is communicating two truths. On the one hand, from this day forward, there will be Two spiritual lines of humanity running throughout all of redemptive history. There is the offspring of Satan, that is those who are not the people of God, who follow Satan's lead, who walk by the power of and the principalities of darkness. And then there are the offspring of the woman, that is the people of God. And we see these two lines will forever be at one another's throats throughout all of redemptive history. In fact, we see that immediately beginning with Cain and Abel. Abel worships God rightly. Cain does not, so Cain kills Abel. And this continues throughout all of world history. There are two lines of people in the world. Those who are the people of God the offspring of the woman, and in those who follow Satan. The second truth is that from the offspring of the woman will come one who will bruise or strike the head of the serpent while the serpent will merely strike his heel. The imagery is of one you know, stomping on the head of a, of a serpent you know, as he does that, it may, it may be uh, that the serpent at the very last moment might strike his heel, but it'll be minor in comparison to what will happen once he puts the heel of that boot onto the head of the serpent. 
From this point on, the story of the Bible is about tracing the seed of the woman throughout history until the promise is fulfilled in Christ. What is truly amazing about that is that Adam and Eve have just committed cosmic treason against God, against the God who had only done good for them, created them, gave them life, gave them everything they could ever possibly need, placed them in a perfect environment, gave them one law, and they commit cosmic treason against God. Yet rather than God smite them dead, he bestows mercy and grace. Yes, he curses the woman with difficulty and childbearing and an innate desire to rule over her husband. Yes, he curses the ground so that it now works against the man. It will not cooperate with him. It will make life difficult in providing for the family. Nevertheless, God's anger is tempered with grace. For he promises to someday send a redeemer. To someday send someone into the world who would begin to reverse the curse of Adam and Eve, who would undo everything that man ruined. And this is what we celebrate this time of the year. We celebrate the mercy and the grace of God. We celebrate during Advent... On Christmas morning, we celebrate the promise of Genesis 3.15 finally being fulfilled in the coming of Christ. The incarnation of the second person of the Godhead takes on human form and comes into the world to crush the head of the serpent. This is what Advent is about. This is what we celebrate during Christmas. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, we stand amazed by your grace and mercy, Lord. Despite all of our sin, despite the horrendous sin of Adam and Eve against your goodness, you display your goodness in the fall by bestowing mercy and grace and giving the promise of a Redeemer who would someday come and strike the head of the serpent and begin to undo what man has ruined. And we thank you, Lord God. We thank you for the historical event that took place 2,000 years ago in the little town of Bethlehem. We thank you for this time of the year when we can be reminded daily and weekly of your goodness and grace and mercy and love and of your trustworthiness, Lord God. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to not make the mistake of Adam and Eve 
but that we would trust your word as it is written, as it is revealed to us, knowing that you are good and all of your laws are good and just and right and holy. And your word and your commands are trustworthy. We pray that you would help us to know that, Lord God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.